be the scriptures with you. There are some found under your pews, and the page number for this passage is 1,206. Romans chapter 14, and I'll begin at verse 1. It says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This morning we move into a slightly different section in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 14 and 15 are a unit talking about unity in the life of the church, and it's very uh, integrated. But this morning I'm just going to be looking at the first four verses, and uh, we will unpack uh, slowly as we work through Romans 14 and 15. But in the scripture there are two competing priorities in the uh, church. One is that the Bible prizes unity. And the second is that the Bible also prizes diversity. The fact that the Bible prizes unity is not hard to establish. Psalm 133 verse 1 says, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Jesus himself prayed for our unity in John chapter 17. says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for all those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world might believe that thou didst send me. And at the same time, the scripture emphasizes the beauty of our diversity. First Corinthians 12, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? There is a purpose, there is a reason for each one of us is being a part of the people of God. But it is a struggle for believers to maintain unity in the midst of diversity. Uh, for our unity is not to be based on our socio or economical similarities or our ethnic backgrounds or even our shared religious convictions and standards, but our unity is to be based on our mutual relationship to Jesus Christ, the fact that we all belong to him. So our theme this morning is that we are to welcome believers into our midst who have different convictions from our own without fighting. Welcome them without fighting. The key verse is Romans 14, 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So the first thing that we note is that we're to welcome those who are weak in faith. So who are those? What does that mean? Well, first of all, the weak in faith are believers. 
were believers. We know that for it tells us in verse 3 that at the end of that verse, God has welcomed him. God has welcomed him. So we're talking about those who have a relationship with God, those who are in a good standing with God, those with whom God is pleased. So these individuals are not people that are void or absent of faith, for they have truly believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are weak in faith. That is that they have questions about their faith. They have questions about the person of God. I'm going to deal much more intensely with what it means to be weak in faith at the very end of the, of, uh, the message, rather than dealing with it here. But we can say this much. The weak of faith are believers that are uncertain about their religious convictions. Thomas Schreiner in his commentary writes, and I quote, the standpoint of the weak on foods and days signals a certain deficiency in their faith. It is not the case, though, that the weak believed that abstaining from meat and wine and observing certain days were necessary for salvation. There is no hint that they were attempting to impose those requirements on the strong for the latter's salvation. It seems likely that they believed that one would be stronger or better Christian if one observed their prescriptions, end quote. As I say, I will develop that more at the end. But let us move to an illustration of the kinds of things that people were arguing about. Verse 2. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. This is just one example of many that could have been given. In fact, next week we'll look at the example of the Sabbath that is given. But uh, what is important to keep in mind is that this was a hotbed issue for the Roman church. It had immediate relevance to the readers. The issue was that of the dietary laws of the Old Testament. And uh, so why was that such a hot button between Jewish and Gentile Christians? People were fighting over these issues. If you look at verse 1, it says, Welcome them, but not to quarrel over opinions. It was resulting in strife, animosity, and division. But Paul didn't shy away from addressing the issue. Now, dietary laws are not a hot-button issue for our church today. Well, that gives us an advantage, so we can talk about these things without getting upset, without having a, a personal uh, gripe about what is being said. The disadvantage is, listeners might think the discussion is irrelevant to them and perhaps even boring. But there are plenty of things that we could talk about this morning over which Christians don't agree. Everything from worship styles, music, conducts, behavior, uh, doctrines, um, and we could go down and uh, develop quite a list of things of which Christians are not in agreement over. There are many behaviors, practices, and doctrines of which Christians do not agree. And so the, the biblical material does have a great deal of relevance to us, 
as we understand the underlying principles of relating to Christians who have different convictions than our own. So, with that in mind, let's look at the concern. What's the concern? What is before us is an issue regarding dietary laws as found in the Old Testament. Are they binding on us today or not? If not binding upon us, would it not be spiritually prudent nonetheless to follow them? Jewish Christians would argue that it would be more pleasing to God if such dietary laws would be continued to be followed voluntarily out of an act of love. They're not arguing that one must follow these dietary laws in order to be saved. But there were many who thought that if you're really going to be committed, if you you really want to be faithful to God, if you really want to please God, you would adopt these dietary laws out of a voluntary love for him. One might look to the book of Daniel for an example. Daniel, who ate only vegetables when he was taken captive into Babylon, and how it pleased God, and uh, God, how he blessed Daniel for that commitment. And so the argument would say, see, we should follow Daniel's example. Uh, We should uh, observe these dietary laws. Other people would believe that they could eat anything, verse 2. That the dietary laws are no longer in effect. That they are not responsible to eat only vegetables. Dietary laws no longer apply. They have been done away with. And there would be numerous New Testament passages that could be cited in support of that position. I'll just cite one, 1 Timothy 4, 2 and following. Though through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So see, you can eat anything. You don't have to follow these dietary laws. The point of the passage is not to resolve the issue. The point of the passage is not a clear instruction as to who is right or wrong at this particular case. Rather, the emphasis of the passage is how are these two very divergent and in fact antithetical viewpoints to get along? How do you hold to certain people saying you can eat only vegetables, other people saying you can eat everything, how are those two people to sit in the same pew and to get along? How can they be welcomed into one body? How can there be unity in the midst of disunity? We have a fellowship meal this morning. 
as often did the early church. What were they going to serve? Vegetables? Meats? And how are people going to respond to what was served? How are parents going to deal with children who asked the question, why don't they do what we do? Why do they only eat vegetables? Or why do they eat meat and we don't eat meat? How are they going to respond? And what's the attitude they're going to present towards those Christians that have a different viewpoint than their own? Well, before we get into all that, we don't want to lose sight of what is the major thrust and point. And the first major point is that the person should be welcomed into the church. If you look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Welcome him. The solution is not to have a church where everyone eats vegetables and across the street or across the city you have another church where people eat meat. You are not to establish two separate entities that are worshiping apart from one another. The two are to worship together, to be a part of the church, and to be a part of the church in such a way as not to fight, argue, or be divisive about such things. Secondly, the solution is not to divide the church itself into smaller groups comprised of those who eat and those who do not eat meat. The goal is to be fully participating members in the church where the issue is not divisive and not separating or segregating individuals. That's the purpose. I'll talk about why that's so important in just a little bit. So what is involved in welcoming others of different convictions? What does that look like? Well, it starts by the way in which we interact with each other. Our text begins by addressing improper responses to those with differing convictions. It starts with how we should not treat one another and moves to how we should. This morning, we're only looking at the negative. How we should not treat each other. And we note that, first of all, the one who eats meat is not to look down upon or treat as inferior the one who abstains from eating meats. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. That word to despise means to look down upon, to belittle. One should not adopt an air of superiority. Now I would point out to you that weak has a negative connotation. If you look at verse 1, it says, receive those who are weak. That's a negative connotation, right? And when you think about it, who wants to be called weak? Uh, who wants to be referred to in that way? Paul uses the word weak, and so we should take note of it. Furthermore, Paul describes himself as one who is strong in the faith. 
And even further, he calls himself and others who share his conviction as strong. If you look at Romans 15.1, we're not going to be working through this whole text, but I just want you to see how it fits together. And in Romans 15.1, it says, we who are strong. So he's making a distinction. He's going he's to say there's a right and a wrong here. He's going to say that, that they're, they're, these things aren't just up in the air. Okay, These are just things that, that don't matter. He's not going there. He doesn't say that this doesn't matter or that it isn't important. But he starts off by saying, but it shouldn't be divisive. It shouldn't be divisive. It shouldn't be something that we are fighting about and over. Additionally, in Romans 15.1, he refers to those who are weak as having failings. Look at 15.1. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the, the failings, the shortcomings. So there's no question about which side the Apostle Paul is coming down on. So when we think about this importance of not looking down on people, it doesn't mean we can't disagree with people. Unity doesn't mean that we all have to think the same way. It also doesn't mean that we can't teach the word of God with authority. That we, we can't come to some determination as to what the word of God teaches. You know, so often in Bible studies, uh, there's this atmosphere where everybody throws out their idea and then you just walk away. With, you're hanging with six different ideas about what the text says, uh, many of which are not compatible with each other at all, uh, but at least we had a good discussion. <laughs> uh, you know, at least, at least we got to think about things in a, a novel or interesting way, but it's not resolved. Well, this morning, the issue's not going to be resolved, but what I'm telling you is it gets resolved. It gets resolved. So when we talk about unity, we're not saying that you can't move the church to maturity or that you don't want to see weak people become strong. But what it is saying is that there's not to be a sense of superiority. So that one is not to approach the subject in a belittling fashion. Nor is it to be approached with malice. One is not to be condescending. Uh, you know, uh, we've all run into people who, uh, when uh, they disagree, put you down, uh, call you stupid. Uh, if they don't call you stupid, treat you like you're stupid. Uh, say, oh, well, yeah, you know, uh, there, there's none of that, and certainly the Apostle Paul didn't do that. The issues must be addressed respectfully, lovingly, and with a great deal of humility. Certainly Paul's approach is warm, welcoming, embracing, affirming people's faith, as he does in Romans 14.1. Welcome them. Here's Paul's instruction, saying that God has welcomed them. So he, he doesn't create a spirit of animosity. And it's important that when we teach differences in doctrine and convictions, 
We do so in such a way that we're respectful, loving, and kind, and give people opportunity to grow, which I will talk about more in just a moment. The one who abstains is not to condemn or find fault with the one who eats. Look at verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who eats abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. So the one looks at themselves as superior because they have the truth. The other views themselves as superior for they are doing what they believe is right. So first of all, the one who does not eat is not to view himself or herself as more spiritual, committed, or dedicated, or faithful than those who eat. That's all including this aspect of passing judgment, okay? So the one who doesn't eat says, you know, if, if you really love God, <laughs> if, if you were really spiritual, if, if you were really committed, if you were sincere about walking with him, if you really wanted to get on board with doing the will of God, then you wouldn't eat. There must be something lacking in your commitment to God. They are not to reason if the one who eats really loved the Lord, they would not eat meat, they'd only eat vegetables. It's a true holier-than-thou attitude. We should not question a person's commitment to the Lord based on their convictions or their understanding of truth. People who are very sincere can have very different opinions. People who really love the Lord can see things in different ways. And so the way in which you maintain peace is not to question the sincerity, the love, the concern of the person who is in disagreement with yourself over some of these particular issues. We will get into much more depth as the weeks go on about the process. But this morning, I want to focus on why the improper responses are wrong. Why should we be so concerned about this? Why is the scripture addressing those? Well, if you notice, in verse 1 it says, we are to welcome all those whom God has welcomed. If in verse 1 it says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Here's the reason, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and not the one who abstains, pass judgment on the one who eats. For, here's the reason, God has welcomed him. So we are to welcome one another because God has welcomed both of us. It is based on the relationship that we have to God. He welcomes us, therefore we must welcome one another. You know, if you, if you mark your Bible... <laughs> Draw a circle around welcome in verse 1 and draw a line to welcome in verse 3. We are to make a distinction between disagreements over the gospel 
and disagreements over other aspects of our Christian faith. When it comes to the gospel, we need to fight for it with tenacity. But beyond the gospel, that which you know, we need to believe in order to be part of God's kingdom, in order to be welcomed by him, we need to fight for it with all tenacity. But other aspects of doctrine, we have to be gracious. If a person knows and loves the Lord, they should be welcomed. And such a welcoming is not to be resulting in, in fra- uh, uh, fractious arguments. But why is that unity so important to achieve? Well, let's back up and understand, first of all, that it is sin that brings disunity. That's what brought disunity into the world, sin. As a result of sin, we have disunity between Adam and Eve. As a result of sin, we have Cain killing Abel. So sin is divisive by nature. So holiness is unifying by nature. It is the exact opposite of being divisive in order to be unified. So the gospel brings people together. The gospel is reconciling. The gospel brings peace. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be all to, to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And there's going to be peace. That is why strife and division is inappropriate in a church. Division is antithetical to all that we believe in. Jump down to Romans chapter 15, because here the book ends, and I want you to see these, these bookends. They're extremely important. Let's uh, go to verse 7, and I'll work backwards. Look at verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So here's the summation. Here's how this whole two chapters fit together. It starts off in verse 1, welcome. Verse 3, for God has welcomed them. The long discussion, Romans 15, 7, therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And then the last statement, for the glory of God, verse 7 ending statement, the glory of God. Welcoming other people that do not share the same convictions that we share brings glory to God. It brings glory to God. Well, how does it do that? Look at verse five of Romans 15. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. It takes endurance. It takes encouragement, and we'll unpack that in the weeks to come. The point is, these are very positive kinds of qualities that need to be developed in each other's lives. Endurance, there are things that you have to put up with. You have to hang in there. You have to work at it. You have to try hard. It doesn't come naturally. 
It isn't a part of our regular makeup. You got to work hard. Verse 6 of Romans 15. That together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you're not to divide up into separate churches. That's why you're not to, dry, to, to, to divide up into different groups. Well, sure, if you're going to have a church where everybody is in their 30s, or you have a church where everybody's in their 60s, or you have a church where everybody has children, or you have a church where nobody has children, or you have a church where everybody's of the same color, or you have a church and you have all these divisions, well, sure, it's easier to get along. Sure, it's easy to be happier with each other. There's no question about it. But that doesn't make it right. That doesn't mean that that's what we should do just because it's easier. Just because it makes us happier and more comfortable. No. We must welcome others. For the reason being, verse 6 of Romans 15, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, therefore welcome one another to Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This unity glorifies God for it demonstrates that God is at work and the effectiveness of the power of the gospel. It is consistent with the working of God. It corresponds with the reality that God has chosen people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. That it was his intent to bring people together, no matter what their social, economical, ethnic background is. It is glorious to God for it reflects the oneness that's going to correspond in heaven. When we are going to worship together with those of every tongue and tribe and people and nation, there aren't going to be separate entities in heaven. There isn't going to be a place for Americans and a place for Indians over here, all right? There isn't going to be a separation between the rich and the poor. And there isn't going to be a separation for those that have eaten meat and those that have eaten vegetables. But they will, with one voice, give glory and praise and adoration to God. And we are to reflect on earth the reality of what's going to take place in eternity. We are to be an example in this fallen world of how people can't get along, of how we can get along. How we can really appreciate people that are different from us. And instead of fighting and quarreling and putting down and separating, we actually welcome them and bring them into our midst. So it brings glory to God because it reflects on the oneness of heaven. Secondly, it is not our place to be condemning others for their convictions. Back to Romans 14, 4. 
Romans 14, 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? There's an important distinction that has to be maintained at this point. Again, we're contemplating the appropriateness of holding people to our convictions. And the idea in verse 4 is that they don't belong to us. This is a very, very important passage, and you almost have to work through it word by word to get it all right and, and to synthesize it correctly. Okay? So when we're talking about our families, for example, it is appropriate for a parent to ask of their children to share in those family values, those family convictions. It's right for you as a parent to say to your child, this is the way we're gonna live. Some people don't eat meat. We do. And you should eat meat. Another family over here is saying, we don't eat meat. Some people do. We eat vegetables. Eat your vegetables. Okay? As parents, it's right for us to have convictions. <clears throat> but we have to teach our children to have respect for those that don't, <laughs> to not fight with those that don't, to say, we're not more committed than they are. It's not like we are more godly than what they are, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But in verse 4, the, the issue is not our children, the issue is our brothers and sisters in Christ. These are people that are not directly accountable to us. They're accountable to God. And such decisions should be left to God alone. For notice verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Well, we're talking about the church. And we could easily say, well, what about the church? What about the elders? Uh, for the church is responsible to the elders. So shouldn't the elders come down and make a decision about these things and make a declaration? Well, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read the whole passage, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21, Paul talks about why he has not addressed certain issues. And the conclusion is in 2 Corinthians 1, 24, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you with joy, for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul says, we don't lord it over your faith. I'm not a master of your faith. He says, I work with you for your joy. So in a church, what we are to do is to try to bring understanding, try to work with people, but at the same time, you can't demand people to believe what you believe. You can have strong conviction. You can teach what is right or wrong, but when it comes down to it, we're going to find out in the past is that everyone be persuaded in their own mind. When it comes down to it, you're going to be accountable before God for what you believe, not what I believe. But we should listen to each other. We should learn from each other. We should profit from one another. So we grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should remember that the ultimate accountability is not to us, it's to God. And our ultimate accountability is not to one another, it's to the Lord. And we shouldn't place ourselves 
in the position of the Lord. Or we should not place ourselves in the position of the Holy Spirit. For notice the end of verse four, and this is the real crux of the first four verses. Romans 14, four. I'm looking at the last phrase. Well, I'll read the whole verse. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And now this. And he will be, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. This gets to the very heart of the issue. This gets to the very element of the, of the disagreement. For it's about who is going to be doing that which is pleasing to God. It's about falling into temptation. It's about committing sinful acts. It's talking about being weak in faith. So what is the weakness in faith in this whole discussion? Well, the term is only used one other time in the book of Romans, and it's found in Romans chapter 4. And it's talking about Abraham. And it says this about Abraham. Verse 18. Uh, I'll start with verse, verse 17. As it is written, I made you a father of many nations, in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he said, so shall your offspring be. Now here comes the phrase. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he's about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. As he thought about God, he grew strong in his faith. The faith was to believe that he was going to have a son, and that was Isaac, and that Isaac would have children because Abraham was going to be a father of many nations. So there's the promise. I'm going to have a son. And it says he did not grow weak in faith as he considered very reasonable things. He considered how old he was. He considered how old Sarah was. Sarah's 99, I believe, years old. And it says that it's past the time of women for her, meaning that she's gone through menopause meaning that, humanly speaking, it was impossible for her to have children. But he didn't let that weaken his faith. But he gave glory to God. He said, God is powerful. God can do anything. And he trusted in God. And trusting in God, he had faith that even ultimately he's going to offer up Isaac, willing to offer up Isaac, as a sacrifice, because he believes that God will raise him from the dead, if necessary, because he says Isaac doesn't have children, he has to have children. Therefore, he must be raised from the dead.
We need to be fully convinced in our own heart and mind of what it says at the end of verse 4. He will be, he, he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Out of a sincere desire many times to protect others from committing sinful behaviors, we have a tendency to bring about convictions. We don't want to see other people sin, therefore we establish rules to keep them, to preserve them, to watch over them. Many times there are things in our own life that we have found to be a temptation. And it's easy for us to assume that because it was a temptation for me, it's going to be a temptation for somebody else. Because I shouldn't do it, it means somebody else shouldn't do it. I'm a diabetic. I wait way too much. And I shouldn't be eating the desserts that I eat. I should be abstaining. But it's because I eat too much and it's because I'm a diabetic. But you, if you're not a diabetic, and you're nice and fit and trim, there's no reason for you not to enjoy all those wonderful desserts. It's not bad for you. It's not harmful for you, as it is for me. We're different. We're different. I knew a, a person one time that before they were saved, they would regularly go to Phillies games on Sunday afternoons. There used to be Philly games at, at 1.30 and stuff. And, and he, he did that weekly. He did that weekly. Uh, he went to Phillies games on Sundays whenever they played. He became saved. He decided that he was never going to go to another Phillies game. Because he thought, if I go to a Phillies game, I'm soon going to be back in my old habits. I'm soon going to be missing church and going to Phillies games. Well, that was his personal conviction. He understood his weakness, and that was his background. But you know, he also became an ardent conveyor of the idea that nobody should be going to Phillies games. Because if you go to Phillies games, it's addictive. If you go to Phillies games, you're soon not going to be in church on Sunday. He almost went through the roof when the church planned a trip to a Phillies game. How in the world could you promote that sinful behavior? There's nothing sinful about it. But that was his experience. That was his background. And out of real sincerity, I love this guy. He's my brother. And he was generally concerned about other people's well-being. The problem was he thought he had to protect them. He thought that his conviction had to be their conviction. That verse in verse uh, 4, underscore it, circle it, asterisk, do something with it. He will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. God can work in somebody's heart and mind. The Holy Spirit can bring conviction. 
The Holy Spirit teaches us what we should do, how we should behave, how we should conduct ourselves. The same Spirit of God that's at work in my life is at work in your life. The same Bible I read is the Bible that you read. The same salvation that we enjoy is our mutual salvation. And God is at work in each and every one of our lives. And so we glorify God when we believe that. We glorify God when we say, God is at work in their life and God is at work in my life. And not to believe that I am more spiritual. And if they were just a little more spiritual, then they would see things exactly the way I see them. No. They're just as spiritual. But maybe they're not a diabetic. Maybe they're not overweight. Maybe their practice for years was not to go to a Phillies game every Sunday afternoon. We have to believe that God is at work in the lives of his people, bringing us together to worship and serve him with one voice. We're going to go slowly through the passage. We're going to deal with the differences, etc. But it starts here. It starts in believing that I can trust God to be at work in my brother and sisters of life. I don't have to convince them. As a pastor, when I teach doctrine, I just teach it. It's not my responsibility to make sure that everybody toes the line, that everybody's in full agreement with everything that, that is said. Allow the Spirit of God to work. Allow the Spirit of God to move. Allow the Spirit of God to develop and grow. I didn't always believe what I believe today. I grew. I learned more of what the Scripture says. Give people time. Give people time. Allow the Spirit of God to work. Allow the Spirit of God to bring conviction. You know, we all know people who are not living for God. And it's so easy to want to come down upon them. And it's so easy to play the work of the Holy Spirit and say, you better get your life straight. Rather than praying and believing that, that God will bring conviction. That his word is powerful. That if they sit under the teaching of the word of God, that God will bring them to a place of repentance. Allow God to work. Because if you don't allow God to work, it's going to result in quarrels, it's going to result in fighting, and it's going to result in division. Of people just separating and walking away from each other. That doesn't mean we don't have convictions. But it means we treat each other with love and respect and ultimately trusting in an almighty, all-powerful God who has loved that person, who has redeemed that person, who's at work in that person, and who will bring that person to perfection and one day be in his presence. And all of us together sing glory and praise to him. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us in our relationship to one another. Help us to welcome those whom you have welcomed. 
to rejoice in the fact that you have done a work in their lives. May our unity be based not upon our personal convictions, but may they be based upon our relationship to you and therefore our relationship to one another. Lord, uh, give us faith. Give us faith to believe that as we read in Romans 8, that you are working all things out for their good, our good. Lord, help us to believe these doctrines, these truths that we hold to, that your spirit is alive and at work in every one of your children. And you are capable of making them stand. You are capable of bringing conviction to their heart and mind. Lord, help us in sincere humility be praying for one another. Not that we're indifferent to one another's sin, not that we are indifferent to one another's struggles, but Lord, may we with humility cry out to you and ask for you to bring conviction, for you to bring repentance, for you to bring them to an end of their selves. And Lord, help us with humility pray that we would all grow in our maturity, in our understanding of the word of God, that we would conform ourselves to the truth of your word, that we'd be willing to repent of ideas that are inconsistent with what your word teaches us. May we long and thirst after righteousness. May we want to be holy. And may we understand ultimately that that desire from holiness has been a gift from you. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ as you work in them and as you create that desire for righteousness and holiness. We will rejoice in what you are doing in our midst. We will rejoice in what you are doing in our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We will acknowledge that we come from far different backgrounds. Our upbringings are very different. And uh, Lord, there are sins that we have engaged in that others haven't. And there are sins that they engaged in that we haven't. And there are concerns for their spiritual well-being that's different than ours. But, oh, Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to praise you. We want to do what is right. We want to be submissive to the word. Give us unity. Give us an atmosphere in which we can be really helpful to one another. That we can talk about these differences in such a way that the love of our hearts shine through. That we're not just trying to win an argument. We're not trying to belittle someone that is more, that's of a different persuasion than ourselves. And we're not trying to say that we are more holy or we are more godly or we have a corner on the Spirit of God at work. So Lord, give us the ability to, together to arrive at the truth. Together to demonstrate a true holiness and godliness as we try to hold each other up in love. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.